This message was recorded during a conference for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Encouraging enough, now I'm going to talk about suffering, <laughs> just to cheer you all up. The sufferings we experience, I don't know about you, but you've, you heard me say earlier um, that I love home. There's something about home, that's where my contentment is, unwittingly probably, if I were to stop and think about it. Uh, we live a pretty full life, many kids, um, we're in ministry, my husband and I both work full time, uh, and I found that often I, I love being home. I'm a bit of an introvert, um, a bit of a homebody. I love just putzing around the house and doing things and making things nice, and, and if my husband comes home and I'm baking cookies or something like that, he knows I'm in my sweet spot because it doesn't happen nearly enough. Um, so for me, it's home is the place where I'm most content. Um, it's a retreat from the busyness of life, from all the stuff that we have going on. It's the place where I can come home at the end of the day and everything I love is gathered together in one place. My kids, my husband, the things I love, my pets. Um, it's where my nice comfy chair is that I can sit near the fireplace and read a book or drink my nice frothy cappuccino at any given time. I love being in ministry, I love what I do, but I love being home. That's where I just rest and say, I'm content where I'm home. Home's my sanctuary, it's my shelter from life. It's, it's where I, I find refuge and, and we love to think of it as a refuge for others too. Um, about five years ago, it's probably going on six, six or seven now, uh, it was a Mother's Day, and whenever Mother's Day happens, I get to pick what I want to do for the day, which I love. So I make everybody do yard work and planting flowers, and <laughs> I produce slaves for the day. No, I don't. Um, we like to, it's just creating something beautiful in our home. So usually we're gardening, we'll go out to lunch. For me, we have a menagerie of pets and we had several dogs. And so we took them on a long hike and went walking and we came back and we sat down on our porch. And, and I'll never forget, we all, uh, a neighbor was walking by and I said, hey, will you take our picture? And she took a picture on our front steps of all of us together on a Mother's Day. And that was, was kind of my memory of how I love to spend a Mother's Day. Um, no, we, we had, I'm trying to think at the moment, so at the, at the time we had five children, we're, foster family, we're a foster family, we've adopted, so you, you never quite know how many kids we have in our home at any given time. Um, we had two dogs, two cats, two birds, two bunnies, I guess I'm modeling after Noah's Ark or something along those lines. Um, all these things that keep us busy, and I remember just this this real feeling of contentment. Just, it was my happy place. And I don't think there was anything bad about it. There was nothing sinful about it, quite honestly. I think it was, it was good. It was, it was a, a well, um, a rightly ordered contentment in what I had. Um, and there's the key. That will always remain in my mind, that picture we had taken, I still have, and I have framed, because the next day, I had taken the week off from work, and I was going to stay home and putz around, and the next day, by noon, we were standing in front of our house with seven fire companies watching our house burn to the ground. Um, everything, everything we had um, was gone. 
it, nothing lasted. So for five hours, this was the heartache of it, for five hours we watched it go from bad to worse. We watched it ravage its way through home. Memories we had made over the last seven years. Um, I literally watched our pets die in front of us. I couldn't go in to, to save them. Thankfully, the kids were at school. Nobody was home. But there I am watching our dogs die in front of us. I'm watching the animals die. I'm watching the things burn to the ground. I experienced this overwhelming sense of grief and remorse because I wasn't there when it happened. And I couldn't have stopped it. And I couldn't have saved the pets and gotten them out of the house. Um, the hard, the hard thing was watching all this. I, I don't think I can paint a vivid enough picture about what that day was like, um, yet alone the ongoing experiences. It brought a range of emotions I wasn't prepared to deal with. Things like uh, the surreal experience of watching firefighters risk their lives to save our home. It was an old home, and actually... Um, the fire traveled through, was it the eaves of the house, and then it burst out from the, um, the roof, and a firefighter had to throw himself down the steps to, to avoid the fire. He ended up going to the hospital, thankfully it was fine. But you're watching these firefighters, seven companies, at some point the alarm went off on all seven fire engines, which meant abandoned ship. We can't save the house, get out of there. So it was a sign to, I guess, the firefighters, maybe some of you know this, a sign to the firefighters that if you hear all those alarms, you get out of the house right away. There's, there's no saving it. Um, so I'm watching this happen. I'm watching the firefighters do this. And then I'm watching neighbors and people coming down the street taking videos of it. And me sitting there just overwhelmed with grief um, and seeing people taking pictures of my grief, of my tragedy, and firefighters trying to save it, and me experiencing this wide range of emotions. And you know, it's kind of funny, the weird things you think. I like to think I think very clearly, I'm calm, I'm rational, but let me give you some insight into things I was thinking. <laughs> so I'm sitting there, overwhelmed with our, our pets dying in front of me, hoping they're still alive, but they probably were already dead, all these things, emotions going on, and then I would think something like, we were redoing a bathroom upstairs, and it was totally gutted. And I sat there and I thought, you know, I'd be really ticked if we had redone that bathroom and it was burning right now. <laughs> I'm so glad I didn't get that bathroom done. To then a range of emotion of being upset again to, oh no, my son borrowed a pair of socks from his friends. I'm not going to be able to give them back to their mother now. To, you know, here it is six years later, I'm still remembering these crazy things I'm thinking to, my gosh, there were like five piles of laundry in the basement. I don't have to worry about that anymore. <laughs> um, to random things like, I, I don't know who to call. I, I don't know what to do. I just, I felt utterly frozen. And to see the sway back and forth from high emotions to, I'm so glad I don't have to do the laundry, to what are we going to wear tonight, to then thinking, my children were... Uh, were being picked up by a friend and going to their house, and the thought of, oh my goodness, I have to show up tonight and tell my kids, don't get me choked up, I have to tell my kids that everything that they woke up to that morning was gone, that the pets they loved were dead, that their toys they owned were gone, that nothing, there's nothing literally to come back to tonight. How in the world was I going to do that? Um, 
grief was foremost, obviously. I wish I could have been there to, to, to rescue the pets, to have intervened. Um, it's not so much the material possessions. You know, there are things I've missed. Um, ironically, years before, as a single person, I had been in an apartment fire and had lost everything as well. And so there was something about just losing material possessions that you came to realize it just doesn't matter. It's all, everything's replaceable. Um, there were hair, heirlooms, like our wedding album was destroyed, um, family photos, Bibles, childhood treasures that I wish I would have had. Uh, but I'm f the first to say that all of, all of we've lost, we've recovered. I mean, I can't explain to you how many times I've walked around my house and said, how in the world could we have burned everything to the ground and still have so much junk here? I don't get it. Five kids, <laughs> menagerie animals, I'm like, we, we're, not, we're not at a loss for anything. So sympathy should never be in the material possessions, even though that can be hard and we can miss things. Um, it really was the pain of watching the refuge that I love burn, the, the, the understanding how much home meant to me, and all of a sudden in one day, home was gone. So here it was, the most significant loss the things that gave me joy, the place I found contentment was all of a sudden gone. It's the memory of watching the fire go from bad to worse, the hours of spending yourself in front of a crisis, knowing you can't, you can't turn around time, you can't change the outcome of it. It's replaying that day over and over again. There were so many times I would just say, if only I'd been there, if only this had happened, if only this had been turned off. The if-onlys just killed me for days and days at a time. What I think the fire really did is it was, um, it was stripping away any sense of stability or safety I had had, any sense of uh, my refuge, my place of contentment. Um, and I realized that for me, the way it impacted me is I began waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, okay, what bad thing will happen next? I'd been through an apartment fire before. Now I lost uh, something far bigger than an apartment and the possessions. It was a home. It was our pets. It was my children's possessions. So I began, I found myself begin waiting for the other shoe to drop. That grief and suffering can sometimes swallow us. For me, it was swallowing me in this, what's next, Lord? What next are you going to do? And it's not that I ever thought I was immune from hard things happening. Um, but it's really different when you have a hard thing happen, right? Um, and the hard thing about waiting for the other shoe to drop was that it did drop. So for us, it was also in a season where we were going through hugely significant career changes, my husband and I, um, and it left a lot of upheaval on an uncertainty about the future and how we were gonna provide for our family. So not the best time to have your house burned down while you're thinking through those things, right? Then the next shoe dropped. So two weeks after the fire, my husband and I were sitting in one of the leading hospitals in Philadelphia with our son, finding out that he was losing his vision. He was diagnosed with a degenerative eye condition that would eventually, will eventually take away his vision. Bad thing after bad thing. So when the fire hit, I was trying to comfort myself with truths like, well, at least no one was home during the fire. People lose their children and things like that. They lose their husbands. Thank you, Lord, I didn't lose that. The kids are safe. 
Um, all those things were true. However, it failed to really understand that it wasn't material possessions. It wasn't, it wasn't just things. It was this, this sense that everything I found rest and contentment in was being taken from me, or felt like it was being taken from me, from my home to a career or stability in our future to now the health of one of my children. And I kept thinking things like, Lord, what else are you going to do? I know there'll be something else. It's like I, I, was, a, I was this little black cloud walking around me thinking more was going to happen. The fragility of life was, was in my face all the time. And it felt like I had to wait. I had to prepare myself for the next bad thing. Life was turned upside down in so many ways um, that it was really hard to believe I could trust God. It was really hard, not because I thought God wasn't good. I didn't actually doubt God's goodness. Um, I didn't become angry at Him. I'm not even sure I could bring myself to question Him, though I had a lot of questions. I had a lot of whys. It was more that I just accepted bad things are going to happen and more are going to come. The question is, in your suffering and your grief, where does it take you? And it takes us all in different directions, does it not? It takes us to doubting God, to questioning God, to fearing God maybe even. Where does your grief and suffering take you? For me, it took me down the road. I embraced God, I knew he was good, but I also thought he just put a stamp on my life and everything was going to go downhill from here. Um, as I said, ironically, it wasn't the first time I had had a fire, and so maybe that played into it. If you had asked me beforehand, I would have said, of course we're not immune from fires and car accidents and bad things happening. Yet the reality is it never had actually touched my life until then. Not really big, big things. And seeing what happened, seeing that these things um, revealed something in me that I didn't even know existed. And that's what suffering and grief can do, right? That it not only is hardship brought upon us, but it brings out something within us that God's calling us to look at. I'd argue that when expectations or assumptions are shattered about life, people tend to fall in the belief that God's failed them, that the world's not safe, that he's not safe, um, that my goal has to be to avoid suffering and tragedy or grief. However, you have here the fact that neither of those are our goal. My goal is not to avoid suffering, though I'm certainly not asking for it. It's not to avoid grief. It is to say that um, Paul in Philippians 4 says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. If you had quoted that verse to me during that time frame, I think I would have wanted to slap you, quite honestly, right? There's well-timed encouragement and not well-timed encouragement. And so when you have all these things happening and somebody says, be content, Julie, you're probably not going to get a really healthy reaction from the person. But the reality is that God takes suffering and grief and he does those things. And how we talk about them matters, how we encourage others matters. That there's a time to rejoice with those who rejoice, there's a time to mourn with those who mourn. 
whether it's tragedy, disability, abuse, death of a dream, it could be infertility, it could be loss of a loved one, or broken relationships, or divorce, or broken dreams. You know, these are all good things that you and I can long for, but when those good things become the essential thing to make us happy or content, it threatens to undo us, right? So I look at, here was my home. Inadvertently, it was something I put my refuge in. Do I think God took it away for that reason? No, but I think the taking away of it revealed how much I valued it. It revealed where my refuge lies. It reveals where my contentment lies. And I found myself struggling to make sense of that. Lord, did you take this away on purpose? Is this why you're doing it? Are you good? Are you mean-spirited that way? Anything I love, are you going to start taking from me? I found myself asking questions I didn't even know were within me to ask and having to wrestle with that personally. I think sometimes you and I, we try to evaluate or compare our suffering with the sufferings of others. I would stop and say, why am I hurting so much? And here's some of the very unhelpful things people say to you afterwards, right? So I think it was two months after the fire. We were in a temporary house. We literally have nothing to our name. Well, we did have insurance, thank goodness, and so insurance came in, and they brought in furniture, renters, uh, furniture, whatever you call it. You know, everything we had was there for us. And I remember a friend saying to me, well, Julie, it's, it's been two months. You know, you're, you're great. You're in a house. Your kids are fine. Why, why are you upset? I remember being dumbfounded. Probably another slapping moment if I'd had the nerve to do it. But I remember being dumbfounded, looking at her going, I, I don't know how to answer that. Because there were two thoughts I had, competing thoughts. One is, how rude, how incredibly rude and insensitive of you. The other thought was actually a fear that, what's wrong with me? Why, why am I struggling? Am I not trusting the Lord? Am I being a baby? Am I making too much of this? So we lost everything we owned. We're going through career changes, and my husband is going to go, my husband, my child is going to go blind. And it's been two months, and we're in a house, and everything's okay. Julie, you should be okay with us. Think about the things we say inadvertently. But what it did is it kept stirring up this. People do struggle with far more, and probably many of you in this room are going f through far worse than I've went through. But why do we feel the need to compare suffering with each other, hardship with each other, supporting each other, and understanding that God brings trials and tribulation to us all. And there can't be any comparing of sufferings. There are some of you who have gone through far worse than me. There are some who have gone through far less. It doesn't matter. God works in each of us, and God uses circumstances in our life. And grief is grief, and suffering is suffering. And we need to give each other the freedom to say that, to say your hardship is hard, and there's no comparison to my hardship one way or the other. I think what we miss when we do that is something very foundational, that it's not what the suffering is or what we've suffered, but how that experience of suffering impacts us, right? What does it reveal in me? What did it reveal in Julie Lowe when she went through these things? Not only what, how the experience of suffering impacts you and I, but what the suffering reveals in you and I. That's really key, too. Because what it revealed in me may be very different than what it revealed in you. 
For me, it revealed where I inadvertently was placing my refuge, where I found contentment and peace. And the Lord was challenging me to say, Julie, is there more than that to you? Have you a greater refuge than that? For me, it meant all I found comfort in and contentment in had been removed. And it was forcing me to look at myself and say, what does it reveal about Julie? I noticed especially the ways began to shape my prayer life. So my prayers were becoming prayers of anxiety. You ever had that happen? Here's the things that would go through my head. I would wake up one day and say goodbye to my husband when he'd go off to work, and I'd say, Lord, please don't let Greg get in an accident today. Lord, please don't let anything bad happen to my kids. Lord, please don't let my little guy die. Every prayer revealed my fear of the future. It it revealed my fear of what bad things might happen next. God was there. I was turning to him consistently, and I was desperate for his comfort. But I think unknowingly, I looked for the promise of his protection more than the promise of his presence. That is so key for you and I. Do we want his presence more than we want his protection? Or is it what he can give us that we want? And I found that was in my face over and over again, that I kept praying, Lord, protect this person, protect me, protect this from happening. And God kept looking back at me saying, Julie, want me. Do you want me as much as you want my protection? This is what suffering does. It reminds us that we must want the presence of Christ more than his promises, more than his protection, more than what he can give us. We can and should express our concerns. You know, what goes amok in our prayer life is that our prayers need to be not prayers of faith and need, but prayers of trust and faith. They must not be prayers, I'm sorry, of anxiety, but prayers of faith. We're all called to bring our needs before the Lord, right? We're called to ask, and God's a generous, loving Father. He wants to give generously. But what I was seeing the shift is all my prayers were prayers of anxiety, and I needed it to shift. You and I, we are all refuge makers. We all seek to find contentment in things rather than a person. What is the thing you're threatened to find contentment and refuge in? Is it a relationship? Is it your success? Is it family? What is it that gives you hope in a refuge? Our fears for the future will often lead you and I um, to what we are tempted to find refuge in. Our fears and anxieties for the future reveal what we live for. Psalm 46 is a great example for that. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to it. Psalm 46 God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. There is a river, the holy habitation of the Most High, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. 
He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. We're all refuge seekers. The problem is there can only be really one refuge that doesn't disappoint us, one place that our contentment can rest and rest on solid ground, one refuge in the midst of trials and sufferings of life. You know, it's interesting that Psalms 46 here says that you and I perhaps can and should actually imagine the worst things that could happen in our life. We're not promised a trouble-free life. There will be trials and tribulations. We will encounter suffering. As a matter of fact, Scripture promises we will we'll go through suffering, right? Why? No one could convince me that the world was not safe and hard things would not come, and I was perpetually fearing the next hard thing. You know what? Anything that minimizes these realities of living in this broken and fallen world aren't going to help us. The best the world has to offer us is think happy thoughts. That won't happen. They try to assure us. And actually, don't we sometimes do this with our young children? We assure them bad things won't happen. They have nothing to be afraid of. Inadvertently, we're not teaching them to find rest in the Lord. We're teaching them to find rest in their circumstances. And it's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches hard things will happen. You will have grief. You will have suffering. Can you trust I am your refuge in the midst of that suffering? And notice what this psalm does. It repeatedly says, yeah, let's imagine. Let's put out the worst out there. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, though mother and father forsake us, though our enemies encamp around us, though our loved ones leave us, death comes after us, Dreams die and friendships fail. It is not the absence of troubles in our life that's our comfort. It's the existence of his presence regardless of the struggles we face. That you and I have utter hope because God's presence is our nearness. He is our refuge. It's not not ever going to be a suffering-free life that we can find hope in and contentment in. Verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. I love that. Why, why does he have to say a very present help? Why doesn't he just say he's a help? Very present, the nearness, the closeness, the immediacy, the intimacy of God close to you and I in whatever grief or whatever suffering we face. Verse 5, God is in the midst of her. Verse 7, the Lord's host is with us. Verse 10, be still, know that I'm God. You know, you see this multiple times in Scripture. Um, Over the last couple months, I was reading through Exodus 14, and this is when uh, Pharaoh's army comes after the Israelites, and they're pinned in, they're hemmed in at the Red Sea. And all the Israelites are going crazy. What? We're going to die here? And why, why did you lead us, lead us out here in the desert to die at the, the shores of the Red Sea? We could have stayed in Egypt. Life always looks better. That suffering looks better than this suffering right now. And this is before God parted the Red Seas. And Moses said to them, God says, be still. God says, I will fight your battles. You only have to be still. Think about that. 
You have, and I don't know about you, but I've never had 10,000 people coming after me to kill me, at least not yet. Um, you have all that danger coming at you, and God's answer is, I will fight your battles. Be still. Here you see, be still. No, I am God. I will do this for you. But doing that for us, being our refuge, does not mean we will not experience trials or suffering. It does mean that nothing this world has, nothing this world has can harm us ultimately. That if you and I find refuge in the things that truly matter in God's presence, in his redeeming work in our lives, in our eternity, then this world cannot take anything from us. We will experience suffering. I will lose the people I love. Um, I will go through more heartbreak. I will have sadness. And this isn't calling us to a stoic way of life by any stretch of the imagination, but it's calling us to say, at the end of the day, where will your refuge lie? Matthew 6, I, I think Janie brought this up last night. Do not lay for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Much of our anxieties is because we're putting our hope in deteriorating corruptible refuges. Everything will deteriorate. Everything will be taken. It will rust. It will be destroyed. Every good thing I desire, family, health, ministry, even those really good things God's given me can replace the Lord. And any time it threatens to replace what truly should matter, I should ask the Lord to reveal that in me. It will not last. It will not satisfy. It never meant to. It was never meant to. Only when contentment is placed in the nearness of God, when he himself becomes my refuge, can you and I stand with utter certainty and confidence that we'll be okay. Suffering, grief, heartache all remind us what we truly live for. You know, not only that, but you and I can fearlessly look to the future and know what Psalm 73 said, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My guess is there's very few of us in, that, in this room who can say that today with utter confidence. We can want to believe it. We can want it to be the cry of our heart. But if I'm honest, I can stand here and say, yeah, there's a lot on earth I desire. There is. Sometimes even more than the Lord. But Lord, rip that out of my heart. Refine me, change that. Would I go through any fire I need to go through if it means I will make you my refuge? And that's a scary prayer, because I pray that, and then I want to go, what's he going to do? Good things that I treasure, that I find joy in, if they become my greatest delight, can also become my greatest fears, right? The things you delight in most in this world are probably the things you fear losing most. When something that is temporary or temporal becomes the one thing I fear losing, that's when anxiety comes in. That's when we become discontent. When God is my greatest delight, when he is the thing I delight in most and I desire most, you and I have nothing to fear because what we love most can never be taken from us. Psalms 27 speaks to this too. Here's where the Psalms are just this beautiful picture of naming what's in our hearts. When the real and perceived dangers come, my enemies, my mother forsaking me, trouble overcoming, the answer remains the same. Psalm 27, 4 says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to seek him in his temple. So you have this picture of to dwell in his temple, meaning to dwell with him, to be in his presence, to be near him, to gaze on him, to delight in his presence, that really he is the thing that brings me delight. To seek, to embrace his will, and to allow it to transform my desires. And that's, that's, the, that's the theme of this, right? That we want that deep abiding in the will of God, that we delight in his will. And if his will is suffering, then Lord, so be it. Bring it on and help me to trust you. We tend to allow the things of this world to become way too big in our eyes. A lot of us, it could be a reputation or career. We need to believe in our whole being that this world has nothing we desire. And there's so many good, uh, in our testimony we just heard, there's so many good praise songs, so many good worship songs out there now that say these things, that talk about, Lord, help Help me to believe there's nothing this world has to offer but you. Help me to cast my vision beyond this world. We live in this world, but we're not of it. How do we do that well? We'll all struggle. It's, it's the battle we have this side of heaven. Much like a parent that enters into a child's room in the midst of a thunderstorm, comfort is found in a personal presence in the midst of trouble, not the absence of trouble. When a little child is afraid and you come in and you comfort them and you say, I'm near you, and you see them just be enveloped in your arms and they feel that closeness, that's how I want to feel towards the Lord. That, Lord, there will be, there will be hard things. Here, Psalms is rich with these uh, passages that will hide under the shelter of his wing, that he's our high tower, that he's our refuge. All these really great pictures of not the absence of trouble, but the presence of God in trouble. We need, we need a view of heaven and eternity that captivates us, that makes us want that, to long for that more than these mud pies we see around us. This will shape then what I find refuge in, what I find contentment in. Years ago, our youngest is nine, probably around five or six. One day I was sitting down at the table, we were setting the dining room table, for a meal, and I sat down next to him on a chair, and he goes, whoa, 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 don't sit there. And I jump up, I'm like, what? I thought there was a mess or something, chocolate milk on there, and he goes, Bob's sitting there. <laughs> Bob who? And he goes, Bob, my friend Bob is sitting there. I'm like, huh. This was the introduction of his imaginary friend Bob into our lives. So Bob was sitting in the chair, I go, who's Bob? Bob's my friend. And he's just a matter of fact about it, I'm like, Okay, well, when did Bob come? Did you let him in the door? Did he sneak in the bag? When, how did he exist? Bob became a regular family member in our home. And what we found about Bob is Bob existed primarily to excuse Connor from all bad behavior. So when, <laughs> when his room wasn't clean, Bob messed it up. When there was a mess on the floor, Bob did it. When he was, he was needing someone to talk to, Bob was there. When he was in an imaginative mood and he was engaging, what I came to find is, so Bob was the main culprit of every mess and problem in our home for many years, but Bob was also a source of solace. And when Connor needed a friend, Bob was there. And when Connor wanted to talk to Bob, Bob was there. Bob existed for Connor. Then one day, 
I said something about Bob. What, did Bob do this? And Connor goes, nope, Bob's dead. <laughs> Bob's dead? We, we all like Bob. What happened to Bob? <laughs> Literally, how did Bob die? When did he die? Like, why in the world are we so invested in this imaginary friend that Bob died? <laughs> Bob, Bob's dead, he announced. And then, only to find out a few months later, Bob was resurrected again. And Bob was back in the house. Think about that for a moment, though. Bob served my son. Bob existed when my son needed him and was killed off when he didn't need him. How often does our relationship with the Lord work that way, though? How often do we have God's presence as nearest to us when we think we need him, when we want him, when we're lonely, but then when life seems to be going okay, he's not there, or he's, he's silent, or he's indifferent, or he's unnecessary. God needs to be a very present help in times of trouble and in times of plenty, in times of blessing and in times of cursing. How can you and I thank God for all the good things that befall us and not praise him in the bad as well? He is our ever-present help in times of trouble. Even though we live in a precarious, broken world, we have a refuge that doesn't go away like Bob does, right? He should be our only desire. The absence of hard things in our lives does not guarantee the presence of peace and contentment, by the way, right? Because we found even envy can enter in. So if there's not suffering and grief, there's other ways that we destroy contentment. Only a deep foundational trust in God's goodness and sovereignty will give us that. What I found is the more God was striving that home for me, the more my prayers were turning to prayers of faith, that I was intentionally saying, uh, Lord, you are good. You are present. You hold my life in your hands. I will choose to trust you today. And P.S., please don't let me get in a car accident. Or, and P.S., please don't let Greg die today. Our anxieties don't go away right away. Our fears don't go away. Our struggles with wanting the good things of this world to become a refuge might always be there. But do I make an active choice to say, Lord, I don't want my husband to die. I don't want bad things to happen. But I want you more. I want to choose you more than I want any good thing this world has to offer. It is you and I making an active decision to say those things. And sometimes we have to say them and let our heart catch up, right? That I can say that and my heart's not fully there yet, but it is the desire of my heart. And that is God's work within us. That we can declare his goodness, we can declare his faithfulness, and then ask the Lord to bring our hearts into a deep, deep trust of those things. Let me go on to talk about for a minute Another example of that, many of you have probably heard this story of Horatio Spafford. He wrote the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. He was a successful lawyer and businessman in Chicago back in the 1800s. He had a lovely family, a wife named Anna, and five children. However, he was a great example, his family was a great example of being no stranger to tragedy their young son died with pneumonia in 1871, and in that same year, much of their business was lost in the great Chicago fire. He lost a lot of wealth, lost his business. 
God, in his mercy and kindness, allowed the business to flourish, but not after a really hard season of losing a son, losing his business. Then in November of 1873, um, his wife and daughters boarded an ocean liner that was headed um, crossing the Atlantic from the U.S. to Europe. There were 313 passengers on board. Among them was Mrs. Spafford and their four daughters. Mr. Spafford had planned to go with his family, but found it necessary to stay back and finish some business problems. So he told his wife he would join her and the children in Europe in a few days, and his plan was to take another ship. About four days crossing the Atlantic, their boat collided with a powerful ship, and then it sank, carrying with it 226 of the passengers, including the four children of the Spaffords. Anna survived, and she wired her husband with a message which began, Saved alone, what shall I do? Mr. Spafford, it said, later framed that telegram and placed it in his office. Another of the ship's survivors was a pastor named Pastor Weiss. He later recalled Anna saying to him, God gave me four daughters, now they have been taken from me. Someday I will understand why. These were not people who were immune from bad things. One earth could have allowed them to go through what they endured and write such a profound song. So Mr. Spafford booked a passage on the next available ship and left to join his grieving wife. With the ship about four days out, the captain called Spafford to his cabin and told him they were over the place where his children went down. And it said that he wrote, it is well with my soul during that time frame. How in the world could you write such a profound song in such profound loss? They lost a son. They lost a business in a fire. They lost their four children far worse than I had gone through. How could he stand there and say, it is well with my soul? I long to have that kind of faith, to have that kind of trust that, Lord, regardless of what you bring in my life, May I trust, may I say, it is well with my soul. It said that uh, his wife Anna gave birth to three more children later on, and again another one died from pneumonia during that time frame. Think about that, six children they lost. Horrifically hard stuff, and yet the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, kept their hearts and minds. We will experience a freedom from anxiety, from suffering and grief, a peace that you and I just can't presently comprehend because we're standing in the presence of a king who we trust, that he is our refuge, that there will be no more suffering, no more tears, no more hardship. I hope that we can believe that song, that though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, through this blessed assurance control, whatever our lot, may God help us to say it is well, it is well with our soul. How about I pray for us? Lord, I, I am not brave. I am quite unbrave. And Lord, this world has many scary things, and you are not afraid to face them Though hardships come, though the mountains fall into the sea, though father and mother forsake us, though our enemies encamp around us, 
Though illness befalls us and tragedy harms us and people reject us, Lord, you are our refuge. You are a very present help in time of trouble. May we rest in trusting that this earth has nothing we desire but you. We are not there, Lord, but we want to be there. We want our hearts to long for you. Would you be faithful in doing that work in our hearts? Would we trust you? Would we also find the freedom to grieve and to go through suffering and know it is hard and still call you good? We pray this all in your precious name. Amen. You've been listening to a conference given for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.